Hello, you are listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on August 23, 2019, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome David Baugli, Master's Candidate in Arab Studies at Georgetown University, discussing his research project entitled Land, Labor, and Youth Aspirations in the Gharb, Morocco. David, welcome to the legation. Um, Thank you for coming up to Tangier. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your research project and how you became interested in studying the issues of collective land and rural livelihoods in Morocco? Well, thank you for having me, John. It's great to be up here in Tangier on this beautiful morning. Um, I first came to Morocco in 2014. Uh, I studied abroad while I was an undergrad, and uh, I was doing a program that was focused on transnational identity and migration. And so I was just starting to get to know Morocco, and at that time I was really interested in food studies um, and how people build identity through food, through consumption, through preparation, and I was just starting to get interested in the production of food. So when I returned to my home university, I started getting really interested in land, land rights, agricultural production, uh, and sort of the roots of food. And I started looking into uh, working on my thesis project in my undergraduate degree, and I looked into Morocco since I had studied abroad here, and I found that Morocco had a really interesting and complex system of land ownership, whereas in the United States we have predominantly private property and state property in in terms of national parks, government installations, uh, public roads, but outside of that there's that's the majority of land in the United States. Whereas in Morocco, there is collective land, there are Islamic endowments, there's different types of, of state land, that's the private domain of the state and the public domain of the state. So I came here to find out more about land policy in Morocco. And in particular at that time in 2015, I was looking at the gaps between official policy and the practice of land ownership. Mm-hmm. Uh, And so I spent uh, a summer here doing research on that. And over the course of that, I met a uh, Fulbright researcher at the time named Stacy Wheeler, who was doing work on the women's land rights movement. And so we did a couple of joint research uh, field visits. And I found out from her about that there was a current government effort being funded by, a current Moroccan government effort being funded by the US government to turn some collective land into private property. Mm -hmm. So I got really interested in this, uh, and I returned in 2017, 2018, to spend a year doing research on what were the different perspectives of stakeholders to this privatization project that is turning collective land into individual private property. Right. You use the term collective land, and you said there's something unique about it in Morocco. What makes, what, what is collective land in the Moroccan context. Is there one type of collective land or are there different types of collective lands? So collective land, it's funny when I, when I tell particularly Moroccan government officials, oh, I'm here doing research on collective land, they go, oh, wow, that's like the most complicated issue in Morocco. Uh, so collective land, there are many types of it. Um, it dates back to a royal decree in 1919 uh, where the Sultan at the time, this is during the French protectorate, created a category of land 
which you could call tribal lands. So there are a set of lineage groups in Morocco um, of people who come from the same lineage, and they own a particular area of land. Mm -hmm. uh, there's about 4,600 recognized lineage groups. Uh, they call them ethnic collectivities. Mm -hmm. uh, and each one of them has the right to manage their land in accordance with local customary law. So you create 4,600 different cases of legal administration of land that is formally recognized by the government. And this land was very tied up in uh, the colonial period because collective land was used to, the system of collective land was used to expropriate land from these lineage groups in order to be exploit, exploited by French farmers mm -hmm. in the beginning. Um, so collective land, it covers about 15 million hectares. That's about a third of Morocco's territory. Um, it has about 10 million residents. Uh, about 85% is used for pastoralism, so it's used for herding right. primarily. Um, a lot of it is very arid. And then you have about 15% that's used for agriculture, and some of it is the most, is some of the richest agricultural land right. in the country. Um, so for me in particular, I work in a region called the Gharb. Um, it's about... 50 kilometers north of the capital, Rabat. Uh, and it's a coastal agricultural plain, uh, and there's a lot of irrigated land there. Right. Um, and so in the Gharb, they have collective land. There's about 100,000 hectares of collective land there in the irrigated zone. But it's a bit of a misnomer to call it collective land because since the 1970s, it's been parceled out to individuals from the group. Right. So it's not farmed collectively. Each household would have their own plot of land. And due particularly to demographic growth, uh, in the past, the group would have a sort of land bank. And when someone reached adulthood and got married, they would be assigned a new plot of land from this sort of collective bank of land. Right. That land has predominantly run out in the region that I work in. And so now instead of people getting a new plot of land, they fracture the lands right. that they would inherit from their from their father mm -hmm. when he passes away. And but, that, but the land is still legally, collectively owned. Yes. So the land is registered in the name of the lineage group. And the, the key issue of collective land is it cannot be sold and cannot be mortgaged. Uh -huh. So this creates a lot of issues with people can't use it as collateral and they can't right. sell it. And so investors can't buy it. Um, but and also usually you, you talked about the privatization program. Normally when, when I think of privatization, I think of a state-owned company or a state-owned structure that is being private, sold through the private sector. The, so the word privatization uh, obviously has some sort of different meaning, I assume, mm -hmm. when it comes to collective land. What does privatization of collective lands um, mean in, the, in this context, in the Moroccan context? Yeah, so some of it is an issue of translation. Uh, there's two words for privatization in Arabic. Uh -huh. uh, one is khasa, which means privatization, right. and the other is tam tamlik, meaning to turn into private property. Oh. And this is, this is tamlik. tamlik? So what privatization means in this context is the lands are being formally registered and a title is being issued. Uh, for the current users of the land. Okay. Uh, and so one of the issues is in this region that I work in, there are additional regulations and restrictions on irrigated land. One of which, most importantly, is that the government does not officially recognize pl agricultural plots smaller than five hectares, which mm -hmm. is about 12 acres. Right. Uh, there 
are virtually no collective plots being farmed that are that size. Um, almost everyone owns between one and four hectares. Uh -huh. uh, and so what the government is doing um, is they are creating these joint titles where there will be multiple people, neighbors, listed on the same title. Mm -hmm. And it's a little unclear how that will um, how that will shake out, whether people will end up buying out the shares of their neighbors or whether an outside investor perhaps would come in and purchase or rent all of the land, uh -huh. uh, which is not really as possible at this point in time because of the complexity of the legal status of it at the moment. Is the system up and functioning? The system, so there's actually two privatization projects mm -hmm. going on now. So one is following reforms in 1969, mm -hmm. uh, where the government attempted to create um, a titling program to turn irrigated collective land into private property. Mm -hmm. And that has been ongoing, and the first titles were published last year. Okay. Um, on about 29,000 hectares of irrigated collective land. Okay. They have not been published. So people have not received their titles yet, but the government has produced them. Whereas this U.S.-funded program is just starting to be implemented this year. Um, so the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is a U.S. foreign aid agency, uh, has a compact with the Moroccan government. The Moroccan government came to the Millennium Challenge Corporation and said, we want to do a privatization project. Will you help fund this mm -hmm. and provide technical mm -hmm. expertise? Um, so the MCC did a study that showed that land tenure issues was a major obstacle to rural development in Morocco, and so decided to fund this project to ease investment, access to credit, and improve rural, right. rural live, livelihoods. Uh, but it's unclear what the implementation will be. They're currently working with a consulting firm to look at how the, the issues that the reforms in 1969 faced and create a new titling system that they have not yet made public right. and are going to implement that as a private project that will then be expanded onto other yeah, so. collective <laughs> So the outcome of access to credit is, in, is envisioned, everyone agrees on that, but the actual making it happen, it, it's in the process of happening. It's still in the process of happening, yeah. And, it, and you, the other part of your project is with rural youth. Mm -hmm. There's got, what, what interests you about that, and what's the link between that and the privatization, the Tumleek process? Right, so I got interested in the issues that rural youth in Morocco face today because in the course of my Fulbright research from 2017 to 2018, I was talking to what they call rights holders to collective land. Mm -hmm. So rights holders uh, are people who actually have the right to access lands. They're the head of the household. Uh, and so usually these people are, say, between 40 and 80 years old. Um, and so I was talking right with adults, with people who are parents, grandparents, and I wasn't really getting the voices of what young people were saying. And in the course of my research, I found out that government officials were also not asking what youth thought about these issues um, and what sort of impacts uh, the privatization project would have on young people living in these rural areas. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I started asking the older generations about their connection to the land because people feel a deep sense of place, right? Land is not just an economic resource. It is also tied to local politics. It's tied to a sense of social identity. Um, it creates a lineal tie back to 
people's ancestors, mm-hmm. um, because many of these people, their families have been living in these places for hundreds of years. Um, and so the idea of selling land to an outside investor is seen as shameful in certain respects, even though it is in some cases seen as an economic necessity. Mm-hmm. But these older generations said that youth didn't have the same connection to land, often because they had gone to cities to work for a period of time, or they hadn't inherited land and were waiting to inherit it. And so if they don't live from the land, they don't have the same connection to it. Right, right. so they, they didn't have the expectation of returning home. Well... No, not necessarily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I've actually found, um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, yeah. um, that migration is ubiquitously seen as temporary. Uh-huh. Um, no, none of the rural youth that I spoke to want to remain in cities or if they migrated abroad would want to remain in Europe. Okay. Everyone wants to raise money to return home and start a small business or invest in the local community. That is the, that is the narrative that exists. Another outcome. Um, what, well, there are, but there are young, there are young people in, who, who remain in rural areas to work. They don't, I don't imagine they all go to the cities. What are, what are the youth who are staying in the regions doing for employment, doing for career aspirations? So people engage in a lot of different activities. And I'll sort of preface this by saying that in my particular research, um, I was speaking with young unmarried men. Um, Mm -hmm. I spoke with a little over 50 young men who are aged 18 to 31 Mm -hmm. um, who are unmarried. married because once you get married and you have children you're not really a youth anymore right (laughs) um so that was some of the criteria of my research so keep in mind my answers going forward are based on that sort of sample of people um and one interesting thing that i recently realized is that because one of the major life aspirations of everyone is to get married people who significantly succeed in the job market no longer remain youth because they get married so those sort of, sorts of people are, in some sense, kept out of my sample. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important caveat to keep in mind. Um, but for people who are remaining in rural areas and are working, um, there are those who work in agriculture, uh, first and foremost. And this was one of the issues that I was really interested in. And I think you can say that there's four main ways that people work in agriculture. So one is they work on their family's farms. Um, and in the region that I work in, the primary cash crop is sugar cane and sugar beets. Um, and so the main, and so they work on their family's farms uh, and the major work cycle is roughly from April through September um, or August. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that begins with sort of preparing the sugar cane, harvesting the sugar cane um, or beets and then doing irrigation from June through mm-hmm. uh, sep- September. And in the rest of the year, there is work, but it's not, um, they, they wouldn't have to go out into the fields every day to, mm-hmm. do, um, to do work. Um, a second form of agri- agricultural labor that a lot of youth engage in is for, for the harvest, but they work for their neighbors. Mm-hmm. So the harvest is a time when people need to hire outside laborers. Um, they can't really do the harvest efficiently with just the labor that exists in their household. So most people will hire 
even very small farmers, people who are working one hectare would hire like 10 workers for like a week. Okay. Um, four days, five days a mm-hmm. week. Um, and they would do the harvest. Uh, and so because not everyone harvests at the same time, there's a period of about two months, for, depending on the rainfall that year, where young people can work in agriculture. And they're making about um, 50 to 70 dirhams a day mm-hmm. um, for about six hours of labor, six to eight hours of mm-hmm. labor. Um, so it's not seen as a very attractive job. But if you're working locally and you live at home, you don't have a huge amount of expenses. Um, so if you want to go hang out with friends, go to a cafe, maybe go to the city for an mm-hmm. afternoon, it's kind of seen as a way to not save money in any respect, but as a way to, um, to enjoy yourself, to have mm-hmm. a little bit of spending money. The flip side is some people use this agricultural labor and the harvest to raise money uh, in an attempt to go to a city to find a job. So they use okay. it to save up a small amount of cash as sort of a nest egg to go somewhere else mm-hmm. in an attempt to find better paid labor. Um, and then there's people who work in agribusiness and there's local agribusiness, um, which primarily employs women, um, much more so than men. Oh. Um, and this is a whole, um, a whole area of research that, uh, I haven't really approached a great deal, but there are other researchers out there who focus explicitly on the, the female agricultural labor. Uh Um, And then people do circular migration for agriculture. Um, And this is really interesting because Morocco has such a broad climate. um, There are, there's different forms of agriculture in different places. So I have met young people who will be like, Oh yeah. So from May to July, I work in like the sugar cane and Mm -hmm. um, I do that for about two months or so. And then I'll harvest some vegetables in like the next region over. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go down to the south to Adakhla or Marrakesh in November, December, January. And I'll work in the citrus farms there. Okay. Um, and so they do this sort of circular migration around Morocco. And they take breaks for a month or two in between at, at home for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and those tend to pay a little bit better. Um, even though people tend to have slightly more expenses because they're not living at home. Um, and so this circular migration issue, I think is really, uh-huh. it's really interesting. Now, in terms of you're, you're discussing, we were talking about rural work. Um, there's other kinds of labor besides farm labor, obviously. Uh, what, how, what about, you know, what, what did you look at issues related to gender or education and class in these communities vis-a-vis the work and labor choices that young people make? Yeah, so this is something that I hear a lot about. And so about 30 kilometers away from my primary field site, there is a free trade zone, um, the Atlantic Free Trade Zone. Uh, so I'm, cer- I'm sure for anyone who is from Tangier... here we know about trade different zones, but... <laughs> Here's a quite a bit, yeah. And so a lot of people have started working in the Atlantic free trade zone, um, particularly young women. Uh, and so I have had a handful of con- conversations with young uh-huh. rural women, but because of my positionality, it's not the easiest group to access. Um, but I talk a lot with young rural men about their perspective on female work in these factories. Um, and one interesting thing is, uh, 
there are several narratives that young men deploy about this. So one, they generally estimate that 70 to 80% of the labor force is female in the factories, Mm -hmm. in the free trade zone. Um, And they assign several meanings or explanations to that. Uh, So one is women are better workers. Um, And by this, they mean that women work with intention, um, that they will do their full shift and put their full effort forth throughout the entire shift without taking breaks to drink a coffee or chat with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also will not request their rights in the same way that men would perhaps. Mm -hmm. So uh, what young men say about young women is that they would perhaps work overtime without requesting overtime pay um, or are more likely to work um, on weekends. so that's sort of one combined right. narrative is that they are better workers and they are perhaps more exploitable workers. Okay. And another narrative is that women have a, have a perhaps stronger desire to work because it gives them greater freedom um, in certain respects, socially and economically. Um, so uh, a pretty strong narrative is that the people that I speak to in the local area will be like, oh, well... Women will go and they'll, they'll work in the factory, but after their shift, they can always tell their family that they ended up staying late and they're working overtime. But in actuality, they went to the city, they went shopping with some friends, you know, right. and they, they have sort of this, this socially acceptable excuse to be out of the household. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not like the region that I work in is a hugely conservative area, but it's still not, um, it's not seen as socially acceptable for women, for young unmarried women to be outside of the house with the exception of education, work, and on market days. Now, in terms of education, I I, I don't know, uh, here in the North, it's quite common that the bulk of the workers in the free trade zone plants have high school degrees. Is it the same where you come from so that are the educational levels of the women and, and youth choosing to work in the free zones higher than those who are staying in the agricultural sector or it's similar and people are just making different choices? It's, I would say it's certainly higher than in the agricultural sector. Uh-huh. So agriculture is seen by many people, agricultural work outside of just working on your family's farms, which right. is seen as an expectation that young people will do to respect their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, Outside of that, it's seen as a last resort type of work. It's that mm-hmm. you can always get work in agriculture right. during the harvest, during during periods of time where people need a lot of extra labor. Whereas in the free trade zone, you either need the back or you need a, a technical diploma. Um, and so most people that I spoke to that that I speak to, these young men, have a technical d- uh-huh. diploma, usually in um, some form of mechanics. Okay. Um, and so, but they usually do not finish the back, whereas my understanding is they say that young women are much more likely to finish the back mm-hmm. at this time. Um, and so it seems that many young men will perhaps not graduate high school or they'll get to the first year of the back and decide not to finish and will then enter into a technical institute in order to get a diploma. Uh, Overwhelmingly state-run institutes which are free. Um, 
And so, but they still need some amount of access to capital in order to do this because the institutes are located in nearby cities and they have to be there Monday through Friday. Um, so basically you need to either have a family member who lives there, who you, you can right. stay with, or you need to get some support from your parents in order to, uh, in order for them to give you some financial support. So it ends up being that the people who do this tend to be the sons of local government officials, school teachers, mm -hmm. people who have a little bit more land and who have built a well at some point right. in the past. They tend to be someone who had some family member in either their parents' or grandparents' generation who had a salaried job um, or in the local sugar factory. Um, uh, and the, lo the local sugar factory, I should add, is another major source mm -hmm. of employment. So sometimes the aspirations depend on choices that were made either by children or their parents mm -hmm. um, that, that might be ruled out for youth because those choices weren't made when they were children in terms of education or... In some ways, yeah. And so I think that there are some people who look at rural Morocco and sort of see, well, you have a small group of rural notables who own huge mm -hmm. swaths of land who often sort of benefited from some sort of collaboration with the colonial regime at some point, and everyone else is kind of on the right. same level. But once you actually go out and start sitting in cafes, talking with people, going to people's homes, there, there is definitely a social class differentiation in the countryside, uh -huh. um, usually based on someone who got either, who got a government job. Um, right. Yeah. And that is really a major deciding factor in intergenerational wealth and capital transfer. And I'm, and I'm thinking of capital in terms of educational opportunities, um, issues like transportation. If you own a car, that right. really opens up a lot of opportunities for you. How did, how did you, the, the, your, your interview subjects, the 50 people you really concentrated on, the 50 men, how, when they discuss their aspirations, their future aspirations, could you talk a little bit about their discussions? That did it involve like planning and not just dreams, but 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 ways and means to achieve the dreams? How were those conversations and interviews? It's a little bit tricky. I've tried to approach this, and it's been quite difficult. Um, so I ask people about their aspirations, their 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 material aspirations. Mm -hmm or social aspirations, mm -hmm. but in a concrete rather than this is my sort of ephemeral dream that I know will never happen. Right. Um, and there's a few different avenues that people approach it through. Um, so one hand on the substance of aspirations, everyone wants to get married and have a home of their own right. to not live in their parents' house. And this is a okay. really big problem in particularly in the villages outside of the towns um, because there's no land to build on. Mm -hmm. um, the residential land has all been built up and the government doesn't permit people to build on irrigated agricultural land. Um, and so this is an issue, this is a zoning issue that w the government will need to address uh -huh. at some point, but has yet to marshal the political will and the government rightfully so doesn't want to let, I mean, it's the same issue of urban expansion into farmland, right? They want to mm -hmm. maintain the farmland how do you keep cities from sort of creeping onto, onto those That's lands? That's a huge issue, but it's a different issue. issue. Right, yes. Um, but in terms, of, so in terms of aspirations, right, having a house, um, getting married, and having a car mm -hmm. are often sort of seen as these, this base level of success. Um, but people feel very marginalized 
in a structural and particular sense. Um, so the issue is even when people are fully employed, they're often making minimum wage in Morocco. And minimum industrial, for an industry, you start at about 2,600 dirhams a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very difficult to save money and start a household mm-hmm. on that wage. And that can go up if you work at a factory for a while. Um, so people who have done it for a couple of years are normally making somewhere between 3,000 to 4,500 dirhams a month. But even that is not is not very much. Right. And so people pool their resources in the households, right? So you, you would have a father who'd be working and say he has three or four sons and all of them work and they all contribute to the household fin- finances. And then they can exchange loans between each other or use the pool of household finances to help them start a, perhaps a project, to buy a taxi, to okay. build a home, to... I mean, there's all sorts of sort of social network loans that occur within social networks or familial networks. But in terms of aspirations to sort of return to your actual question, people talk a lot about migrating to Europe. Um, That is definitely a major topic of conversation. Mm -hmm. But I don't think people are willing to face, the people who remain are not willing to face the risks. They Mm -hmm. they know exactly how risky it is um, and they don't want to migrate illegally and face those risks. Mm But what's interesting is I've, I've tried to pull out a lot of hypothetical situations being like, oh, if you were in Europe and you were working a good, a good job there, what would you do? Would you marry a European woman? Would you marry mm-hmm. a Moroccan? And everyone that responded to me, they want to marry a Moroccan woman. They don't want to stay in Europe. The only reason they want to go to Europe is for economic reasons mm-hmm. and is only to save money. Most people say, I would go there for five or six years, save money, return home, mm-hmm. and start a either a cafe or a restaurant or a corner store. And then I would live my life mm-hmm. and be like kind of semi-retired. Yeah. And it would, it would be fine. Um, and so that's sort of the dream that I think many people have is to be a small business owner yeah. and to remain in, in their bled, in their, in their place of origin. Yeah. And the, the uh, so coming back to the, to the overarching theme of the collectivization of uh, the privatization of collective lands, excuse me, uh, this is going, this will change. It's, it's envisioned to, to produce different outcomes for the, so, for the society for rural societies. Um, are people, are youth, conscious of the changes that are happening or are envisioned to happen? Are they starting to think about what maybe their, how that might impact their own decision-making processes um, as, it, as, it unfold, as the privatizations unfold? So I would say in some ways it's not an issue that youth are thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that there are two primary reasons for that. So one is that youth are not actually basing any part of their livelihood except what support they receive from their household on, um, on working on, on their own farms, right? Youth, mm-hmm. youth do not have their own farms. Right. Um, and even most of their parents or grandparents who are farming, who have owned these lands for generations, it's not their primary source of income either. Mm-hmm. It's one income source amongst several. Um, so they're, they're also doing livestock. They'd also have people who work in factories. Um, they'd have 
they might have someone who runs a store in the local town. Um, so there's definitely this sort of income diversification. Um, and so youth are, do not think of agriculture as holding a future for them. So they don't really think about it in that sense. Uh, and secondly, they're just not going to inherit very much land at all. Um, they're going to be inheriting um, most youth uh, who are between 20 and 30 years old will inherit between 0.05 and 0.1 hectares mm-hmm. to maybe 0.2 hectares, like a fifth of a hectare. Um, you can't farm that, really. And so there's these discussions of will people use them? Will people s- start farming them communally with their family members, mm-hmm. with their brothers and sisters who have also inherited sections of these plots? Um, and this depends on the family. It depends on if there's yeah. sort of internal... And the idea of accessing credit using land titles would be something that I, that perhaps the parents would be more interested in, as you talked about the diversi- diversification of their own household income sources. Credit access to credit could be an enormously helpful mm-hmm. element to it. But for you, for youth at this point, they don't they are they are they're not thinking about that element of the of the uh, outcomes of the privatization programs no they're, they're not thinking about it and I think it's particularly for those whose grandparents are still alive they're not going to inherit land right. for 30 years right and they'll be you know 50 or 60 then by the time they inherit um, and so they can't build their lives based based mm-hmm. on on this notion but I think that um, many people will end up selling or renting their land um, mm-hmm. because the the main the main legal change of privatization is once it becomes private property, it can be bought and sold in land markets. Mm-hmm. And these uh, these collective lands have been in a sort of frozen state. Um, there's a lot of dynamics going on in collective land all over Morocco, mm-hmm. outside of the region that I work in. A lot of it is being rented by foreign or domestic agribusiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the region that I work in, it's very patchwork. It's not like there's a huge clump of collective land yeah. and a huge clump of state land next, next, next door. It's all intermixed. Mm-hmm. And so you see these people who are farming a hectare of land, and right next door, there's a farmer who has 400 hectares. From the collective lands that were, that were taken. sold in the, in the colonial era or something. Correct, yeah. That became private mm-hmm. a century ago, not yeah. quite. Um, and so... If those farmers could expand, why wouldn't they? They've been sort of prevented from being able to expand onto collective land. And so in some sense, it's and this whole privatization is an is an opening, is a sort of thawing of this this legal state that collective land has been in in the irrigated regions. Um, And so it's creating a lot of possibilities. And so some there's been talk amongst the government of trying to encourage um, trying to encourage people within the collectivity to get credit to buy out the shares of their neighbors mm-hmm. and sort of create a new class of medium-sized farmers um, because the real issue the government sees is land frag- fragmentation right is that mm-hmm. is that you know two generations ago there was enough land for each household to sort to live off of agriculture right. they have 50 descendants yeah they can't they can't live off of that. And so they're trying to think of ways to reconsolidate, and they're going through the market to do that um, rather than doing any sort of 
traditional notions mm-hmm. of land reform. That's, so there's a lot of room for some future return research. Definitely. As the program progresses and as, um, as these youth's lives develop into to see how aspirationally, how they achieve those, the aspirations that they've articulated to you. Well, thank you very much. I don't know if you want to add anything else, but it's been a pleasure to interview you. And I do hope you go back uh, once you finish th- this particular research program that you return and, and stay in touch with, with the communities that where you've been living and working. Well, thank you for having me, John. Yes, I very much hope to continue this research in the future and see what, uh, what lies in store yeah. for um, Morocco and the Moroccan countryside and the particular region of the Gharb that I work in. And um, I think that a lot of people are paying attention to this issue. Um, as we, we were talking earlier, even the king, in one of his latest speeches, brought up mm-hmm. the issue of collective land. Um, and needing to uh, use it um, more effectively and efficiently um, as a lever of development. And so I think that for both local people and some of the top top decision makers in Morocco, this is a critical issue facing Mm -hmm. the country. And and he mentioned professional training, which you didn't, that's not your research, but when you talked about the people working in the free zone companies, it's a a very important issue for those young people as well who come from the same communities. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of two dual issues that are on the the table right now in in, um, conversations going on in the political sphere in Morocco that I think speak very closely to the experience of rural youth. Excellent. Well, thank you. It's great to hear that and, mm-hmm. and hope to see you, welcome you back soon. Thank you so much, John. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.